Hello, welcome to Gardener's World. I mean, the re-re-read podcast. Forgive me, it's the first night of the new season of Gardener's World, and some of us are just very, very excited. Anyway, we are on Moby Dick. We are talking about what contemporary writers like you and me can learn from this tome. And today's topic is, what is Ishmael, or fun and frustration with point of view? This is an issue that arises not only in this novel, but when you start to think about it, almost everywhere in fiction, if not in all writing that has ever been done or will be done. What exactly is a narrator? Is that the same thing as a narrative voice? In the first-person point of view, it would seem so, unless your narrator is Ishmael. As many readers before me have pointed out, with that famous opening line, Call me Ishmael, Melville calls his narrator's identity into question right from the start. Why not say instead, my name is Ishmael? Call me Ishmael suggests that Ishmael, a loaded name if ever there was one, is as good a name as any, which means no name is truly applicable. We've learned to suspect any first-person narrator of unreliability, but this is another level. From the start, it's unclear who, or perhaps even what, this voice is coming from. Now, it's easy to set these questions aside, and indeed one has to, if one wants to proceed with reading the story at any reasonable pace. I tend to consider Ishmael as a Nick Carraway-style narrator, an actual person who's present at the events he's relating, though more observer than participant. However, in the history and anatomy of wailing passages, one senses a different narrative voice, an old guy hunched over dusty tomes who might as well be Melville, but may not be, since Ishmael mentions in passing, or possibly in jest, that he's unlettered. Then, in the chapter called A Bower in the Our Societies, we are forced to confront this problem head-on. Hitherto, in descriptively treating of the sperm whale, I have chiefly dwelt upon the marvels of his outer aspect, or separately and in detail upon some few interior structural features. But to a large and thorough sweeping comprehension of him, it behoves me now to unbutton him still further, and untagging the points of his hose, unbuckling his garters, and casting loose the hooks and the eyes of the joints of his innermost bones, set him before you in his ultimatum, that is to say, in his unconditional skeleton." But how now, Ishmael, how is it that you, a mere oarsman in the fishery, pretend to know aught about the subterranean parts of the whale? Did erudite stub, mounted upon your capstan, deliver lectures on the anatomy of the cetaceae, and by help of the windlass hold up a specimen rib for exhibition? Explain thyself, Ishmael. Can you land a full-grown whale on your deck for examination as a cook dishes a roast pig? Surely not. A veritable witness have you hitherto been, Ishmael. But have a care how you seize the privilege of Jonah alone, the privilege of discoursing upon the joists and beams, the rafters, ridgepole, sleepers, and underpinnings making up the framework of Leviathan, and be like of the tallow vats, dairy rooms, butteries, and cheeseries in his bowels. Lovely. Ishmael goes on to say, in his defense, that he once dissected a young sperm whale that was hoisted onto the deck. But this hardly seems to explain the vast scope of his knowledge, as he clearly recognizes. In fact, he seems to toss this whale-cub at us as a joke and a tease. How do you know so much about astronomy? Well, ten years ago I watched a Nova special about the moon. The teasing, for that's what I think this is, goes on. And as for my exact knowledge of the bones of the Leviathan and their gigantic, full-grown development, for that rare knowledge I am indebted to my late royal friend Tranquo, King of Tranque, one of the R. Societies. Apparently, on a visit to this island, Ishmael toured the complete skeleton of a whale that had washed up on shore. The skeleton, like Pip, as we talked about last time, had undergone a wondrous transformation. 
The ribs were hung with trophies. The vertebrae were carved with our society in annals, in strange hieroglyphics. In the skull, the priests kept up an unextinguished aromatic flame, so that the mystic head again sent forth its vapory spout, while suspended from a bow, the terrific lower jaw vibrated over all the devotees, like the hair-hung sword that so affrighted Damocles. It was a wondrous sight. The wood was green as mosses of the icy glen. The trees stood high and haughty, feeling their living sap. The industrious earth beneath was as a weaver's loom, with a gorgeous carpet on it, whereof the ground vine tendrils formed the warp and woof, and the living flowers the figures. All the trees, with all their laden branches, all the shrubs and ferns and grasses, the message-carrying air, all these unceasingly were active. Through the lacings of the leaves, the great sun seemed a flying shuttle weaving the unwearied verdure. O oh, busy weaver, unseen weaver, pause, one word. Whither flows the fabric? What palace may it deck? Wherefore all these ceaseless toilings? Speak, weaver, stay thy hand. But one single word with thee. Nay, the shuttle flies. The figures float from forth the loom. The fresher rushing carpet forever slides away. The weaver god he weaves, and by that weaving is he deafened, that he hears no mortal voice, and by that humming we too who look on the loom are deafened, and only when we escape it shall we hear the thousand voices that speak through it. For even so it is in all material factories. The spoken words that are inaudible among the flying spindles, those same words are plainly heard without the walls, bursting from the open casements. Thereby have villainies been detected. Ah, mortal, then be heedful, for so, in all this din of the great world's loom, thy subtlest thinkings may be overheard afar. For all I know, such a bower does exist, but the way Ishmael describes it, it's anything but real. Yet it is here, amid enchantment and divine mystery, that Ishmael proposes to undertake that most rational of activities, measuring the whale's skeleton for his future reader's edification. The priests object, Darst thou measure this our God? That's for us. But Ishmael takes advantage of a comical skirmish among them to complete his task. Maybe even up to this point we believe his story, but then there's this at the end of the chapter. The skeleton dimensions I shall now proceed to set down are copied verbatim from my right arm, where I had them tattooed, as in my wild wanderings at that period there was no other secure way of preserving such valuable statistics. But as I was crowded for space and wished the other parts of my body to remain a blank page for a poem I was then composing, at least what untattooed parts might remain, I did not trouble myself with the odd inches, nor indeed should inches at all enter into a congenial admeasurement of the whale. Now Melville's just having us on. We can no longer be expected to believe that Ishmael's an ordinary person. Of course, no one on the Pequot is, as our narrator is at great pains to tell us. The blacksmith, the carpenter, the deranged, drowned child who's still alive, every character has a bizarre tale. Not to mention, of course, Ahab himself. But Ishmael is something else entirely, a blank page who wanders through the book, composing himself at will. Sometimes he looks rather like a person, sometimes he sounds like one voice or another, like the whale, the narrator's exposed in this passage, but also hidden. We think we see the apparatus that keeps him together, but the trees are waving, the light is flashing, and Ishmael vanishes in a magical joking blur. You can call him Ishmael, but that container really does not hold him. Jonathan Culler's article, Omniscience, takes on the problem of what the so-called all-seeing narrator is. How embodied does a narrator have to be? How present? How much of a person can a narrator be before real human limitations get in the way of telling the story? These can be tough questions for writers to solve, 
Melville's solution is to have Ishmael appear and disappear as a character and call his own reality into question. This gives Melville the option of showing the thrilling and often deeply moving personal experiences on board the whaleboat, as one can do with a conventional first-person narrator. At the same time, Ishmael can go anywhere, see anything, and know all that is to be known, at least by his creator. Who went down to the depths with Pip's immortal soul and saw, with Pip, God's foot upon the treadle of the loom? Well, Ishmael did. He can do that. This is Nick Carraway as a ghost or a demon. Yes, point of view is hard enough without introducing this is he or isn't he or what is he in the first place business. On the other hand, by setting or upsetting our expectations from the very first line, I am and I am not Ishmael, Melville frees himself from the usual worries about what a first person or third person or any person narrator can or can't do. This could be fun. <laughs>